Section 10 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd The Condemnation and Death of Socrates B.C. 399 by Plato Part 2 Upon this Simeas smiling said By Jupiter, Socrates, though I am not now at all inclined to smile, you have made me do so, for I think that the multitude, if they heard this, would think it was very well said in reference to philosophers, and that our countrymen particularly would agree with you, that true philosophers do desire death, and that they are by no means ignorant that they deserve to suffer it. And indeed, Simeas, they would speak the truth, except in asserting that they are not ignorant for they are ignorant of the sense in which true philosophers desire to die, and in what sense they deserve death, and what kind of death. But, he said, let us take leave of them, and speak to one another. Do we think that death is anything? Certainly, replied Simeas. Is it anything else than the separation of the soul from the body? And is not this to die, for the body to be a part by itself, separated from the soul, and for the soul to subsist a part by itself, separated from the body? Is death anything else than this? No, but this, he replied. Consider then, my good friend, whether you are of the same opinion as me. For thus I think we shall understand better the subject we are considering. Does it appear to you to be becoming in a philosopher to be anxious about pleasures, as they are called, such as meats and drinks? By no means, Socrates, said Simeas. But what about the pleasure of love? Not at all. What, then, does such a man appear to you to think other bodily indulgences of value. For instance, does he seem to you to value or despise the possession of magnificent garments and sandals and other ornaments of the body, except so far as necessity compels him to use them? The true philosopher, he answered, appears to me to despise them, does not, then, he continued, the whole employment of such a man appear to you to be not about the body, but to separate himself from it as much as possible and be occupied about his soul? It does. First of all, then, in such matters, does not the philosopher above all other men evidently free his soul as much as he can? from communion with a body? It appears so. And it appears, Simeas, to the generality of man, that he 
who takes no pleasure in such things, and who does not use them, does not deserve to live, but that he nearly approaches to death, who cares nothing for the pleasures that subsist through the body. You speak very truly, but what with respect to the acquisition of wisdom? Is the body an impediment or not, if anyone takes it with him as a partner in the search? What I mean is this. Do sight and hearing convey any truth in men, or are they, such as the poets constantly sing, who say that we neither hear nor see anything with accuracy? If, however, these bodily senses are neither accurate nor clear, much less can the others be so, for they are all far inferior to these. Do they not seem so to you? Certainly, he replied. When then, said he, does the soul light on the truth? For when it attempts to consider anything in conjunction with the body, it is plain that it is then led astray by it. You say truly. Must it not then be by reasoning, if at all, that any of the things that really are become known to it? Yes. And surely the soul then reasons best when none of these things disturbs it, neither hearing, nor sight, nor pain, nor pleasure of any kind, but it retires as much as possible within itself, taking leave of the body, and as far as it can, not communicating or being in contact with it, it aims at the discovery of that which is. Such is the case. Does not, then, the soul of the philosopher in these cases, despise the body, and flee from it, and seek to retire within itself. It appears so. But what as to such things as this, Simeas? Do we say that justice itself is something or nothing? We say it is something by Jupiter, and that beauty and goodness are something? How not? Now then, have you ever seen anything of this kind with your eyes? By no means, he replied. Did you ever lay hold of them by any other bodily sense? But I speak generally as of magnitude, health, strength, and, in a word, of the essence of everything, that is to say, what each is, is then the exact truth of these perceived by means of the body, or is it thus? Whoever among us habituates himself to reflect most deeply and accurately on each several thing about which he is considering, he will make the nearest approach to the knowledge of it. Certainly. Would not he, then, do this with the utmost purity, who should, in the highest degree, approach each subject by means of the mere mental faculties, neither employing the sight 
in conjunction with the reflective faculty, nor introducing any other sense together with reasoning, but who, using pure reflection by itself, should attempt to search out each essence purely by itself, freed as much as possible from the eyes and ears, and, in a word, from the whole body, as disturbing the soul and not suffering it to acquire truth and wisdom when it is in communion with it. Is not he the person, Simeas, if any one can, who will arrive at the knowledge of that which is? You speak with wonderful truth, Socrates, replied Simeas. Wherefore, he said, it necessarily follows from all this that some such opinion as this should be entertained by genuine philosophers, so that they should speak among themselves as follows. A bypath, as it were, seems to lead us on in our researches undertaken by reason, because as long as we are encumbered with the body, and our soul is contaminated with such an evil, we can never fully attain to what we desire, and this, we say, is truth. For the body subjects us to innumerable hindrances on account of its necessary support, and, moreover, if any diseases befall us, they impede us in our search after that which is and it fills us with longings, desires, fears, all kinds of fancies, and a multitude of absurdities, so that, as it is said in real truth, by reason of the body it is never possible for us to make any advances in wisdom. For nothing else but the body and its desires occasions wars, seditions and contests, for all wars among us arise on account of our desire to acquire wealth, and we are compelled to acquire wealth on account of the body, being enslaved to its service, and consequently on all these accounts we are hindered in the pursuit of philosophy. But the worst of all is, that if it leaves us any leisure, and we apply ourselves to the consideration of any subject, it constantly obtrudes itself in the midst of our researches, and occasions trouble and disturbance, and confounds us so, that we are not able by reason of it to discern the truth. It has then in reality been demonstrated to us that if we are ever to know anything purely, we must be separated from the body and contemplate the things themselves by the mere soul. And then, as it seems, we shall obtain that which we desire, and which we profess ourselves to be the lovers of wisdom, when we are dead, as reason shows, but not while we are alive. For, if it is not possible to know anything purely in conjunction with a body, one of these two things must follow. Either that we can never acquire knowledge, or only after we are dead, 
for then the soul will subsist apart by itself, separate from the body, but not before. And while we live, we shall thus, as it seems, approach nearest to knowledge, if we hold no intercourse or communion at all with the body, except what absolute necessity requires, nor suffer ourselves to be polluted by its nature, but purify ourselves from it until God himself shall release us. And thus being pure and freed from the folly of body, we shall in all likelihood be with others like ourselves, and shall of ourselves know the whole real essence, and that probably is truth. For it is not allowable for the impure to attain to the pure. Such things, I think, Simeas, all true lovers of wisdom must both think and say to one another, Does it not seem so to you? Most assuredly, Socrates. If this, then, said Socrates, is true, my friend, there is great hope for one who arrives where I am going, there, if anywhere, to acquire that perfection for the sake of which we have taken so much pains during our past life, so that the journey now appointed me is set out upon with good hope, and will be so by any other man who thinks that his mind has been, as it were, purified. This earth and the whole region here are decayed and corroded, as things in the sea by the saltness, for nothing of any value grows in the sea, nor, in a word, does it contain anything perfect, but there are caverns and sand and mud in abundance and filth in whatever parts of the sea there is earth, nor are they at all worthy to be compared with the beautiful things with us. But, on the other hand, those things in the upper regions of the earth would appear far more to excel the things with us. For, if we may tell a beautiful fable, it is well worth hearing, Simeas, what kind the things are on the earth beneath the heavens. Indeed, Socrates, said Simeas, we should be very glad to hear that fable. First of all, then, my friend, he continued, this earth, if anyone should survey it from above, is said to have the appearance of balls covered with twelve different pieces of leather, variegated and distinguished with colors, of which the colors found here and which painters use are, as it were, copies. But there the whole earth is composed of such, and far more brilliant and pure than these, for one part of it is purple, and of wonderful beauty, part of a golden color and part of white, more white than chalk or snow, and in like manner composed of other colors, and those more in number and more beautiful than any 
we have ever beheld, and those very hollow parts of the earth, though filled with water and air, exhibit a certain species of color, shining among the variety of other colors, so that one continually variegated aspect presents itself to the view. In this earth, being such, all things that grow, grow in a manner proportioned to its nature, trees, flowers, and fruits. And again, in like manner, its mountains and stones possesses, in the same proportion, smoothness and transparency, and more beautiful colors, of which the well-known stones here, that are so highly prized, are but fragments, such as sardin stones, jaspers, and emeralds, and all of that kind. But there, there is nothing subsists that is not of this character, and even more beautiful than these. But the reason of this is, because the stones there are pure, and not eaten up and decayed, like those here, by rottenness and saltness, which flow down hither together, and which produce deformity and disease in the stones and the earth, and in other things, even animals and plants. But that earth is adorned with all these, and moreover with gold and silver, and other things of the kind, for they are naturally conspicuous, being numerous and large, and in all parts of the earth, so that to behold it is a sight for the blessed. There are also many animals and men upon it, some dwelling in mid-earth, others about the air, as we do about the sea, and others in islands which the air flows round, and which are near the continent, and in one word, what water and the sea are to us for our necessities, the air is to them, and what air is to us, that ether is to them. But their seasons are of such a temperament that they are free from disease, and live for a much longer time than those here, and surpass us in sight, hearing, and smelling, and everything of this kind, as much as air excels water, and ether air in purity. Moreover, they have abodes and temples of the gods, in which gods really dwell, and voices and oracles, and sensible visions of the gods, and such like intercourse with them. The sun, too, and moon, and stars are seen by them such as they really are, and their felicity in other respects is correspondent with these things. And such, indeed, is the nature of the whole earth and the parts about the earth. But there are many places all round it throughout its cavities, some deeper and more open than that in which we dwell, but others that are deeper have less chasm than in our region, and other are shallower in depth than they are here, 
and broader, but all these are in many places perforated one into another under the earth, some with narrower and some with wider channels, and have passages through, by which a great quantity of water flows from one into another as into basins, and there are immense bulks of ever-flowing rivers under the earth, both of hot and cold water, and a great quantity of fire, and mighty rivers of fire, and many of liquid mire, some purer and some more miry, as in Sicily there are rivers of mud that flow before the lava, and the lava itself, and from these the several places are filled, according as the overflow from time to time happens to come to each of them. But all these move up and down, as it were by a certain oscillation existing in the earth. And this oscillation proceeds from such natural cause as this. One of the cousins of the earth is exceedingly large, and perforated through the entire earth, and is that which Homer speaks of, very far off, where is the most profound abyss beneath the earth, which elsewhere both he and many other poets have called Tartarus. For into this chasm all rivers flow together, and from it flow out again, but they severally derive their character from the earth through which they flow. And the reason why all streams flow out from thence and flow into it is because this liquid has neither bottom nor base. Therefore it oscillates and fluctuates up and down, and the air and the wind around it do the same. For they accompany it both when it rushes to those parts of the earth and when to these and as in respiration the flowing breath is continually breathed out and drawn in. So there the wind, oscillating with the liquid, causes certain vehement and irresistible winds, both as it enters and goes out. When, therefore, the water rushing in descends to the place which we call the lower region, it flows through the earth into the streams there and fills them just as men pump up water. But when again it leaves those regions and rushes hither, it again fills the rivers here, and these, when filled, flow through channels and through the earth, and having severally reached the several places to which they are journeying, they make seas, lakes, rivers and fountains, then, sinking again from thence beneath the earth, some of them having gone round longer and more numerous places, and others round fewer and shorter, they again discharge themselves into Tartarus, some much lower than they were drawn up, others only a little so. But all of them flow in again beneath the point at which they flowed out and some issue out directly opposite the place by which they flow in, others on the same side. There are also some which, having gone round altogether in a circle, 
folding themselves once or several times round the earth like serpents, when they had descended as low as possible, discharged themselves again. And it is possible for them to descend on either side as far as the middle, but not beyond. For in each direction there is an acclivity to the streams both ways. Now, there are many other large and various streams, and among this great number there are four certain streams, of which the largest, and that which flows most outwardly round the earth, is called ocean, but directly opposite this, and flowing in a contrary direction, is Acheron, which flows through other desert places, and, moreover, passing under the earth, reaches the Acherusian lake, where the souls of most who die arrive, and having remained there for certain destined periods, some longer and some shorter, are again sent forth into the generations of animals. A third river issues midway between these, and near its source falls into a vast region burning with abundance of fire, and forms a lake larger than our sea, boiling with water and mud. From hence it proceeds in a circle, turbulent and muddy, and folding itself round it, reaches both, other places, and the extremity of the Acherusian lake, but does not mingle with its water, but folding itself oftentimes beneath the earth, it discharges itself into the lower parts of Tartarus, and this is the river which they call Pariflegaton, whose burning streams emit dissevered fragments in whatever part of the earth they happen to be. Opposite to this, again, the fourth river first falls into a place dreadful and savage, as it is said, having its whole color like Cyanus. This they call Stygian, and the lake, which the river forms by its discharge, Styx. This river, having fallen in here, and received awful power in the water, sinking beneath the earth, proceeds folding itself round, in an opposite course, to Pariflegathon, and meets it in the Acherusian lake from a contrary direction. Neither does the water of this river mingle with any other, but it, too, having gone round in a circle, discharges itself into Tartarus, opposite to Pyriflegathon. Its name, as the poets say, is Cossetus. These things, being thus constituted, when the dead arrive at the place to which their demon leads them severally, First of all, they are judged, as well those who have lived well and piously, as those who have not. And those who appear to have passed a middle kind of life, proceeding to Acheron, and embarking in the vessels they have, on these arrive at the lake, and there dwell. And when they are purified, and have suffered punishment for the iniquities, they may have committed, they are set free. 
and each receives the reward of his good deeds according to his deserts. But those who appear to be incurable through the magnitude of their offenses, either from having committed many and great sacrileges, or many unjust and lawless murders, or other similar crimes, these a suitable destiny hurls into Tartarus, whence they never come forth. But those who appear to have been guilty of curable yet great offenses, such as those who through anger have committed any violence against father or mother, and have lived the remainder of their life in a state of penitence, or they who have committed homicides in a similar manner, these must of necessity fall into Tartarus. But after they have fallen, and have been there for a year, the wave casts them forth, the homicides into Cossitus, but the patricides and matricides into Pariflegethon. But when, being borne along, they arrive at the Acherusian lake, there they cry out to and invoke, some those whom they slew, others those whom they injured, and invoking them, they entreat and implore them to suffer them, to go out into the lake and to receive them, and if they persuade them, they go out and are freed from their suffering, but if not, they are borne back to Tartarus, and thence again to the rivers, and they do not cease from suffering this until they have persuaded those whom they have injured, for this sentence was imposed on them by the judges. But those who are found to have lived an eminently holy life, these are they who, being freed and set at large from these regions in the earth, as from a prison, arrive at the pure abode above, and dwell on the upper parts of the earth. And among these, they who have sufficiently purified themselves by philosophy, shall live without bodies throughout all future time, and shall arrive at habitations yet more beautiful than these, which it is neither easy to describe, nor at present is there sufficient time for the purpose. But for the sake of these things which we have described, we should use every endeavor, Simias, so as to acquire virtue and wisdom in this life, for the reward is noble and the hope great. To affirm positively, indeed, that these things are exactly as I have described them, does not become a man of sense. That, however, either this or something of the kind takes place with respect to our souls and their habitations, since our soul is certainly immortal. This appears to me most fitting to be believed, and worthy the hazard for one who trusts in its reality. For the hazard is noble, and it is right to allure ourselves with such things as with enchantments, for which reason I have prolonged my story to such a length. On account of these things, then, 
a man ought to be confident about his soul, who during this life has disregarded all the pleasures and ornaments of the body as foreign from his nature, and who, having thought that they do more harm than good, has zealously applied himself to the acquirement of knowledge, and who, having adorned his soul, not with a foreign, but its own proper ornament, temperance, justice, fortitude, freedom, and truth, thus waits for his passage to Hades, as one who is ready to depart whenever destiny shall summon him. You then, he continued, Simeas and Sebes, and the rest, will each of you depart at some future time, but now destiny summons me, as a tragic writer would say, and it is nearly time for me to betake myself to the bath, for it appears to me to be better to drink the poison after I have bathed myself, and not to trouble the women with washing my dead body. End of section 10 Recording by Mike Botez.